Club with Brad and Al. We are part of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their career milestones, breakout hits, labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what kind of themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Today, we are making a return journey to the epic works of Japanese film master Akira Kurosawa. Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we had left Akira Kurosawa on an incredibly high note from our episode uh, a couple months back, where we were talked about a sequence of four astounding pictures, Rashomon, Ikiru, The Seven Samurai, and Throne of Blood. And if you are wondering what we had to say about those films, please do check out episode 141, which was released back at the very beginning of this year, and it will catch us up to where we're going to start today. And in this episode, we are going to try to take a measure of the second half of this guy's uh, gigantic career and look over films which not only return to some of his favorite subjects, but some that go in some very interesting new directions. We'll start with an adventure that many of you are very, very familiar with for reasons that will become obvious in his film, The Hidden Fortress from 1958. This follows two lowly peasants who failed to turn the most recent war to their advantage. But their luck may turn when they are recruited by the promise of gold and a samurai general to help rescue a princess and return her safely across enemy lines. So this was a bit of a surprising move for Kurosawa, considering what got us to this point. Uh, his last three films before Hidden Fortress were a uh, record of a living being, which is a, a very serious drama about a man's fear of nuclear war, Throne of Blood, which we discussed in part one, uh, Kurosawa's take on uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, and The Lower Depths, which was based on a Russian play by Maxim Gorky. So I think maybe the last thing people were expecting was just a fun comic adventure romp. I found this wonderfully entertaining. I think it's his funniest film. Hmm. We follow these two peasants played by Minoru Chaaki, who has been in more Kurosawa films than any other actor, and also Kamatari Fujiwara, both known for more serious roles, but here very much hamming it up as these scruffy, no-good guys who are just looking to figure out a way to, to make a buck. And then what's wonderful is their chemistry with uh, Toshiro Mifune, who 
returns to the his samurai role, but again brings kind of a lightheartedness, a sense of enjoyment and bigness to his performance, and also some strangely uh, short shorts. As for those two bumpkins, I don't know how charmed you were by those guys. I, I was a little less enamored by it because the film just spent quite a bit of time establishing their squabbling, which were, was at a continuous pitch for me. I felt like I was watching a comic duo if the duo was Costello and Costello. <laughs> <laughs> and Mifune's character is a little off to the side. Is the, Those two are the main, these two squabblers are the main guys. And it's bracketed when they meet the princess. I don't even think Mifune shows up until a good 10 minutes after they've been spending a lot of time talking about the right way they're going to get a chance to molest this princess. <laughs> but this gal is not having it. She is a pretty unique character, I found, in, in not just Kurosawa, but movies in general, because she is defined by her intense stare. Yes, this is the first role for Misa Uhara as uh, Princess Yuki. Her introduction to the film is a great one because uh, she's being watched by our, our two peasants who have uh, untoward intentions. And the minute she susses them out immediately and just starts swinging branches at them, and they realize that <laughs> they've met their match. Even if they don't know she's a princess, they do know she's not having it. But I do want to talk about the role of these two comic relief characters because they are central to Kurosawa's strategy on, on how he want, why he wanted to make this film, mm. which is he wanted to tell an adventure story from the point of view, not of a hero, not of royalty, but of the two lowliest people in the film of these people who would be relegated and forgotten in most films, here they become the point of view characters. And that comes certainly with a lot of shtick. And I think maybe I enjoyed the shtick a little more than you did, because unlike some earlier Kurosawa films made during the war, where the acting wasn't quite up to snuff and some of the shtick was way over the top, I think these two actors have a, have, have a great banter together. And they convey the uncouthness of these characters, <laughs> while also, I think, being enjoyable to watch. The other thing that I think is really effective in showing the story unfold from their point of view is the way Kurosawa films the grand scenery and environment, which is taking place in this uh, mountainous region. He brings the same kind of awe-inspiring camera work to his comedy as he does to his more epic films. So all this bickering, all this silliness is now contrasted against this gigantic, beautiful scenery that is filmed for the first time for Kurosawa in widescreen. Which uh, they called Toho Vision. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. So if you see Mifune's first appearance, he's basically triangulated 
between these these two hills as he shows up at first and this is the kind of composition that works perfectly with widescreen so he's adjusted immediately to the new format and excels at it mm. for the most part it's a romp a fun adventure with this comedy and then action just parceled out in a nice manner but there is some interesting facet there about like how like the widescreen composition show all these plays of people no matter how mighty or uh, princessy they are is in context with the vast landscape i connect that with the journey of the princess who is following a little standard story template, maybe of, say, the Prince and the Pauper kind of situation, because she is in hiding. Mm -hmm. But part of the her journey is how she does develop. She gets an increased awareness of how her subjects live, like when she's hiding amongst people at a market, say. And she also very, very, very slowly and deliberately becomes more and more open as the film goes on, leading to what I found a kind of an effective, mournful song about three quarters of the way through the picture. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of, to me, it's kind of a fun way of showing through the comedy how whether you're a gold-hunting peasant or a princess, your actions are placed in contrast to these wide expanses that they're transversing to go through their adventure. Yeah, I think you're you're really on to something. These are some universal themes that are being dealt with in a very fun way and turns out a couple decades later somebody noticed I mean, look at how mifune was such an iconic guy but he's sort of relegated to a side role the people who made the film red sonia were clearly watching i'm sure that's what everyone was thinking uh, <laughs> it is actually most famous for being one of the key inspirations for Star Wars. Lucas really latched on to the key point Kurosawa was trying to make with these films, which is what happens when you tell a story from the lowliest character's points of view. So the way he changed it in his... Uh, original space opera was to create the lovable droids r2d2 and c3po who are the lowest ends of the totem pole in that galaxy far far away to the extent that even the cantina people won't let them in right they're be treated like peasants mm -hmm. one is tall one is short they bicker they separate in an argument in a desert-like setting, only to be brought back together when they're captured. So it's clearly not an accident. It's something George Lucas readily talks about. But the comparisons keep going. You have the storyline of a general rescuing a strong princess in both films. There's even some individual scenes that are echoed. For instance, later in the film, Makabe, the Mifune character, faces up against a former friend of his in a lance duel and leaves him scarred. That fellow, by the way, was uh, played by Susama Fujita, who was the star of Kurosawa's very first film, Senshiro Sugata. Huh. 
What an interesting callback on a guy who's not did not really make a, a lot of appearances since Sanshiro or its sequel. He showed up a few times, but kind of in smaller roles, and he may have ended up in a couple uh, Japanese monster movies uh, here and there. But another example of a specific scene is from Return of the Jedi. If you uh, recall the scene on Endor where Luke has to chase these two stormtroopers on speeder bikes, that is almost identical to a similar scene in The Hidden Fortress where some soldiers come upon our merry band and the general realizes he's going to need to do something about that. And in this really dynamic, exciting horse chase sequence, he chases them down. Right. Mm -hmm. more, more often than anything else... Including, I would believe, the idea of the incredibly spunky princess who does very non-princessy things. It's the sensibility of the Hidden Fortress, which I feel that uh, George Lucas uh, put a tunnel to and absorbed mm -hmm. to get the sensibility of Episode Four. I think you're really onto something about showing people at the at their lowliest level and how they can go and have a triumph against mighty forces. The mixture and the alternating between adventure and comedy is very, very similar in both films to the extent that like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz, you can almost, I almost feel when I, when I watch Hidden Fortress that you can almost match together. Right. I mean, th there's are differences too. There's no Luke Skywalker character. There's no Han Solo or Chewbacca. But if you kind of just stick to the droids... I think Mifune's character is most analogous to Obi-Wan Kenobi. But just to show the level of George Lucas's love of Kurosawa and how much not just this film, but all of Kurosawa has influenced him. We mentioned in part one that these Japanese period pieces were known as Jedegekais. Now that word was utilized as well <laughs> to create the word Jedi. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Lucas honors the entire genre in the name of in his own mythic um, religious order. So that's a really cool way of putting in respect to what Kurosawa inspired him to do. Right. So Kurosawa is this bridge. We've now looked at a film that birthed a new kind of blockbuster cinema. And in his next film, we're going to look at him taking on a completely different genre, taking on source material that inspired him. Money and corruption are ruining the land. Crooked politicians betray the working man. Something is rotten in the state of the unexploited land development corporation <laughs> in 1960s The Bad Sleep Well. Toshira Mifune's Nishi marries into a powerful business family recently plagued by a series of suspicious suicides. An accusatory wedding cake is only the first clue that someone is ready to expose their crimes. Kurosawa 
continues to innovate by being the first example I've ever seen of an accusatory wedding cake. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and before we, we get into this, the, the Bad Sleep Well is a film of many twists and surprises. We're going to talk about them in detail. So a overall spoiler warning for this entire discussion. Before we get into these spoilerific details, the impression I would want to go and convey is that this is a, this film takes this idea on corporate espionage and criminal investigation and goes into some really surprisingly mysterious and strange corners. So it is a very fun exploration into human darkness on Curious Housewark. That's my impression. Agreed. And I would even go so far as to say that if you look at it a particular way, the Bad Sleep Well could be considered the first new Hollywood film. For those who don't know, define new Hollywood. It's the uh, in the late 60s when films like Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, and eventually the films of uh, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, and the rest changed the industry to create a much more directorial vision for American films that make the films of, of the 70s so distinct. There's two ways in which I think they connect to this film. One is how it opens. We have a 15-minute prologue that is basically an observation of this wedding, where we get some commentary from the press, and in great detail, we are watching the wedding unfold in what could even be considered the mundane parts of it. This will be echoed in the beginning of The Godfather, where the wedding is a backdrop for that film's start. And then in The Deer Hunter, when it's an even more prominent place in the film, just getting to know the characters through these ceremonial introductions. Oh my god, that's just a great point. Just like The Godfather and The Deer Hunter, you get the whole sketch of the corporate world and point out all the different people in these warring companies and the press provides an effective commentary underlying all of it. And as the wedding ritual goes on, you get to see who has a sort of superior position, who is scared, mm -hmm. who, has, who has more in control, who is less in control. And it is a masterful sequence. And then uh, here's where the spoilers come in, the way the film ends with the all-powerful, faceless corporations having stamped out the rebellion of the characters and any real hope for idealism. This was also echoed in a number of 70s films, like the Parallax View, and it has everything but the line, forget it, Nishi, it's Chinatown. <laughs> like Ikiru, it's making this political kind of statement or social kind of statement upon how difficult it is for people to do the right thing against, quote-unquote, the system. But I really like how Kurosawa approaches this from a different angle. And I think the movie you were quoting, The Parallax View, that's a similar 
cake. I think the paranoia that you see in Parallax View almost becomes like a physical, suffocating presence. And in The Bad Sleep Well, one of the things I most enjoy about it is how Kurosawa effectively makes a sense of malevolence and things being out of control as like a physical presence in a way similar to how some noir films do. An unseen one. That's right. Because you do have a nominal villain, but you also have the idea there's somebody pulling that guy's strings as well. Right. He is just one cog of this machine. But it's almost like the smoke emitting from this machine is just comes across through the movies. So as the movie goes on, things just get more and more disheveled. It feels more claustrophobic. And near the end, things just descend to just almost pure random chaos of all the junk that's littered as uh, littered around the characters. And as the angles get even more oblique pointing straight upwards and straight downwards. Humanity is feels like it's losing its footing in this film. Yeah, and this will be a theme that Kurosawa is going to come back to again and again as his view of humanity really gets darker as he grows older. That redemption at the end of Ikiru is not going to be found here. Mm-hmm. The sensibility of never-ending darkness from the setting reminds me of one of the great things about uh, Fincher's movie Seven. Mm -hmm. The malevolence is not just coming from the murders, but from such a horrible environment where these murders are taking place. Yeah, and just like Seven, The Bad Sleep Well also functions as a wonderful thriller. There are just a number of set pieces that are unforgettable. And for me, the key ones are the ones that harken back to the suicide that sets up the plot of a man who is convinced to jump out of a building, one of the workers in the corporation. And so this wedding cake we referred to earlier, I want to talk about a little more because it's such a wow moment as the wedding reception is unfolding and this cake which is a replica of the company building a giant cake is wheeled in with a black rose at the window of uh the man the very window where the man leaped from yeah. exactly and you see that and 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 you kind of like even without context you're like oh boy this is this is messed up the framing is <laughs> exquisite right down to the fact that the sound design has these rolling <laughs> the rolling sound as it slowly approaches just implies menace and then when we actually get into the building itself nishi has found one of the conspirators and is basically in the process of driving him insane with guilt and so he brings him up to the very room where this guy talked the original employee into jumping and goes through this very intense game of cat and mouse where it looks like he might either be pushed or jump out the window himself. And part of the way that he messes with his head is a subject that films such as the parallax view or blow up 
explore the idea of people losing themselves or their own sense of existence because there is part of the reason he's freaked out is because a person who we had thought had died mm-hmm. just keeps appearing and he they appear in this these incredibly uh, stark manners such as like in the gleam of headlights or just magically appearing behind them when they're big getting in this automobile it is like almost like a horror movie effect on a detective type drama and in the sense of identity one of the main characters had assumed a new identity he already is doing multiple roles by being part of a family while working against that family but it turns out the reason why is yet another level to his character. So you're looking at a person and his actions and going, well, who is this guy really? And it does also share with Parallax the idea of, is he able to affect change or is the system using him as a placeholder for their own ends? So all these themes are prevalent in Kurosawa. They're prevalent in New Hollywood, but if they sound familiar, they were also prevalent in quite the acclaimed play, a, a little a little ditty called Hamlet. Which, Hamlet? Hamlet. We're going to go Hamlet on this, because a lot of people consider this to be somewhat of a version of Hamlet. Now, it is not. It's about as much Hamlet as The Lion King is Hamlet, <laughs> which means... It's a little Hamlet. Let's go back to the wedding cake. Even though that scene takes place at the beginning of the film, and the similar scene in Hamlet takes place in the middle, what it echoes is the famous line, the play is the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And in Hamlet, he brings these actors into the court to perform The Mousetrap, which is a play within a play about how his father was murdered by his uncle. And the cake in this film basically takes on the exact same role. Okay. On a broader level, if you once it is revealed, and it's not revealed right away, that the man who committed suicide is in fact Nishi's father. So he Ah. has taken on a false name, a false identity, married into this family for the pure purpose of revenge for his father's murder. And this is delivered very, very nicely by Toshiro Mifune. Yeah, this is a very different kind of performance by Mifune. He disappears in this role. He is mostly playing it very close to the vest. And it's really interesting to watch scenes in which he dominates the film while being completely silent. So if The Bad Sleep Well has Mifune being very out of character in his next film... He'll almost define his character.
Right. He makes an iconic move in Yojimbo in 1961, where he plays a man with a fake name, a wandering warrior who happens upon a violent town mired in a standoff between two warring crime factions. As a master swordsman, his service is in much demand by both sides. But this Ronin has other plans. So before we delve into this gem, we're going to be introduced to yet another major acting talent that is going to dominate many Kurosawa films from this point on. And that is an actor named Tatsuya Nakadai. He plays the villain in Yojimbo. This is his first starring role for Kurosawa, and he leaves quite the impression. But his work with Kurosawa is only the tip of the iceberg of his career because he starred in almost all the films from another one of our favorite Japanese directors, Masakai Kobayashi. Films like The Human Condition, Samurai Rebellion, Kwaidan, and Harakiri all feature Nakadai. Also, amazing films from other directors like The Face of Another, Sword of Doom, and When a Woman Ascends the Stairs. But it starts for Kurosawa here in Yojimbo. He is maybe the most interesting character in Yojimbo for me. I'm a little was thrown for a loop for Yojimbo because I had heard about this film's reputation as influencing, just influencing, Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. So when I watched it now for this podcast, I kind of figured, no, he took this film wholesale. <laughs> well, well, Kurosawa noticed and launched a lawsuit against the studio because he was not credited. They settled out of court. But it's difficult if you've already seen A Fistful of Dollars, as we have. And in fact, we did an earlier episode on Sergio Leone that hope you'll uh, get a chance to check out, in which we go into detail on Fistful of Dollars. But there there might be some uh, some repetition there because these two films are so similar in plot and mood, although Leone brings, basically invents his unique style, while at the same time Kurosawa is refining his. Right. It's evocative of the style of the Seven Samurai with hints of like the kind of adventure that we have from the Hidden Fortress, but in the specific details of the main character's arc and how he interacts with these two warring factions, Fistful of Dollars is a complete and utter remake of those details. Right down to the idea that the way that he escapes from a predicament is to be in a coffin. Which right? never <laughs> which is one thing, but to literally be in a coffin while staring out at a building getting destroyed is exactly duplicated in both films. <laughs> But what's fascinating to me, though, is how they complement each other. Hmm. Each film works this plot in a similar fashion, but they're, they're both so entertaining in their own ways. And I think that comes back to two things, to the, the skill 
in the filmmakers and also the charisma of the leading men. Because Mifune, as you said, delivers an iconic performance as uh, Sanjiro in this film. He basically defines the popular conception of a samurai. He's got all these fun little uh, bits of business he does. He's dressed as a peasant and kind of always scratching himself and looking sideways at everyone in ways that Clint Eastwood will emulate, but also yes. make purely his own. He's not doing in Fume. <laughs> I think he is, or at least the, I, I think Mifune did the mold of which Eastwood American Americanized slash Italianized in A Fistful of Dollars, that attitude of cheerful disregard for a sense of ethics towards <laughs> this or that warring faction is so evident in both films. Also, that what you described of the way that he looks askance at all the posturing that people do in terms of attempting to look big or important in this town. His, that kind of cynicism and sense that your skills are put you above this is also hugely prevalent in, in, in both. In one scene literally above, when he climbs to the roof of one of the buildings to just watch these warring crime families uh, go at each other exactly. and yeah. <laughs> and basically like, okay, I've got these guys figured out. Like I said earlier when we brought when we started bringing up this film, though, I do really, really like the take that Tatsuya Nakadai had with his character. His henchman is very, very enamored by his brand new samurai defeating toy, a gun. He always keeps one arm hidden in the kimono and almost seems like ready to lick his lips at any time this, this gun slowly slides out of whatever the reaches of the kimono to <laughs> point at people. Yeah, he doesn't show up until the film's already gone on for a bit. So what we've seen up until this point are kind of generic thugs. And then when he brings this much more charming uh, malevolence to the screen, it's a great moment. And also, the gun continues a theme from Seven Samurai, which is the idea that the samurai class is endangered mm -hmm. by the introduction of guns into a world of swords. Now, unlike Seven Samurai, where gunfire really does spell doom for the samurai class, Sanjuro has tricks up his sleeve to deal with this gun situation. <laughs> his leaf-impaling skills are beyond <laughs> dispute. I, to this, I don't really know how Kurosawa managed to film him nailing a leaf with a uh, uh, a knife over and over and over, but it's a skill that proves uh, surprisingly useful when it comes to a iconic final showdown. Yeah, and just as an action film, Yojimbo is such a blast. It has these amazingly well choreographed sword fight scenes. And just as the spaghetti western was influenced by this movie, this movie, in turn, really took much of its inspiration from 
American Westerns. So there's kind of this circular set of influences that Kurosawa is involved in when it comes to uh, Japanese and American film. Oh, for sure. I would very much say that this is a Western because at, unlike, say, even Savage Samurai, which made some points upon where the samurai fit or don't fit in society, here he is unabashedly the hero of the picture, and he is a guy who owes no allegiance towards a group, an organization. He is a person who's doing right by standards that he himself has, which is the quintessential Western promise of like idea in this kind of vast wasteland, what can a person do to define himself? And something that became quintessential of 60s action heroes in general from James Bond nice. to the man with no name, yet he maintains this darkness along with his heroism because he is willing to kill. He is, at least in the first part of the movie, in it for himself, for his own reasons. Yet the movie values the fact that it is, is, it is his own. I mean, look at how it ends with... He comes in alone, and he le and he leaves alone. It's his adventure is defined by himself and the people that he helps or or um, kills off along the way. <laughs> I also think though that when um, uh, Tatsuya Nakadai makes the scene, his gun toting, it's right about the same time that um, Sanjuro gets captured, and the people who hold him prisoner are pretty unique fellows. One is a Ironically, you should say James Bond, because I think the Japanese Richard Keel might be one of the <laughs> <laughs> the people tormenting him. Yes. Uh, a guy who's a, very convincing in being able to take uh, Mifune by, by holding his head in his hand and shoving him completely across the room. <laughs> and the uh, his other uh, captor is a short, squat, and very stupidly impulsive guy. And their increasing frustration at having to deal with um, Sanjiro is both entertaining, but then also provides a palpable sense of menace as well. Yeah, he gets uh, beaten pretty bad uh, at yeah. the end of this film. Another move that will be replicated in all three of Clint Eastwood's dollar films. Right, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, then in Western tradition, we have this great showdown, sword versus gun. Right, complete with escalating action alternating quicker and quicker between what now is a real rogues gallery of villains all pulling out their swords and Sanjuro himself just can keep walking keep walking <laughs> so yojimbo ended up becoming kurosawa's most financially successful film in japan it was huge so of course there was call for a sequel, and it did come in 1962. This 
This time, Toshiro Mifune's title samurai happens upon a group of younger samurai who find themselves in over their heads, facing the evil superintendent who holds their honest chamberlain and his family hostage. Sanjuro's wits and sword skills may save the day, but only if they listen to him. The more and more I think about it, Brad, the more I think your James Bond comparison with the Fistful of Dollars Yojimbo series is more and more apt. In this particular case, if Yojimbo is a kind of a James Bond-like look at an individual heroism, Sanjuro is the our man Flint <laughs> version of it. It is a Kurosawa's take on making fun and highlighting the the silly things of his of the own genre he just created a um, movie before. Yeah, this is a charming film. It has a lot of the same elements that Yojimbo had. It's very much like a modern sequel in that it, it wants to make yeah. it ever so pal more palatable to audiences. So some of the rough edges are sanded down a bit. We open with this group of really incompetent uh, yes. samurai trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this threat. They've assumed that the wrong character is the villain. And Sanjuro just happens to be sleeping in the other room. Whereas in the first movie, he was very much a man looking after his own interests. Yeah. In Sanjuro, he is ready to lead the team. He just wakes up out of his stupor. Here's how incompetent these guys and their plans are and says, all right, I got your back. I'm taking over this horse show. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's kind of a sarcastic superhero movie in a way. His motivation seems to be, well, I got to save the day because Lord knows if I wasn't here, these guys would be in trouble immediately, which is <laughs> very true. The characterization that put in some of the villainy of Yojimbo is a little bit missing, in t not just on the villainy, but also on some of the more, um, on the allies people, because these, uh, samurai are to a person embarrassingly incompetent. There's a crazy comedy movie called Snow White and the Three Stooges, and a way of having, <laughs> that, that that's kind crazy. of what it reminded yeah. me of, because <laughs> this is really, um, uh, Yojimbo and the story of the nine stupid samurai. <laughs> These guys are just so goofy and wrong at every moment. Never more so than with one of them who's a particularly has the Robert Mitchum like level of sleepy eyes and is always saying the exact wrong thing to the level that reminded me of the police chief and die hard. <laughs> he would always just say the completely most inappropriate, dumbest decision and always has some beef to say with Mifune, <laughs> despite the fact Mifune could obviously just deal with him in a, in a flick of the wrist. Right. He, uh, Mifune keeps coming up with these brilliant plans that they keep screwing up, either because they just straight out don't trust him and think he's trying to stab them in the back, or because they're, they just can't handle uh, any of this without his constant uh, watch. Mm -hmm. Right. And while he... Um in Yojimbo, he has a level of cunning that is above the other people, mostly due to the fact that they, they're just selfish and just too 
invested in their petty squabbles. But here he's a 1960s Batman level, <laughs> always like four, uh, always like four steps ahead of everybody else. He always is ready with exactly the right course of action to take. And to the extent that um, he gets put in trouble, it's just because he decides he's more bored than anything else to put himself in a dangerous situation. And and he's got more uh, physical idiosyncrasies in this one. He's constantly scratching himself. Yeah, doing these true. little. <laughs> this is Mufoni yeah. at his most itchiest, <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> now there there's a couple ways in which. Uh, Leone's sequels also echo the sequel to Yojimbo. Right. One of them is that you have a lot of the same supporting cast, including Tatsuya Nakadai, but playing a completely different character. And he repeats the name bit. In the first movie, they ask him his name, and he sees a mulberry field and takes his name on the Japanese word for that. Here, once again, he's asked his name, and he just comes up with a completely different name based on uh, where he is, but keeps the Sanjuro part, which just means he's 30. Ah, I see. I'm glad we didn't get the uh, follow-up movie where he was uh, asked his name, and he sees a public outhouse. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons that there's such a different tone is that this originally was not going to be a Sanjuro movie at all. Oh. Uh, Kurosawa had planned to do an adaptation of a short story called Peaceful Days. But once Yojimbo became so huge, he was convinced to adjust his script to turn this into a sequel and take elements of Peaceful Days and incorporate characters from Yojimbo into it. Hmm, how fascinating. It's really interesting how sometimes when director just has to follow on a certain expectations of films that they made popular or genres that they made popular, in Sanjiro, Kurosawa definitely has a, not just a cynical, but I guess maybe a whimsical take on this. He could have been very much more sarcastic than he did. But here he's just saying, well, we're just going to have more and more explicit fun and have people comment on the story like for one example when some of the nine stooge samurai are are poking their heads out of a place they were hiding their little sound effects going (laughs) (laughs) and during the course of the story they rescue a mother-daughter pair the mother of which is constantly saying all right well you need to rescue this guy but can we do it with as little violence as possible, <laughs> leading to some very fun reaction shots by Sanjuro, who has very trouble processing how to deal with this person. And I think in my favorite, most enjoyably silly part of Sanjuro is that they capture a guy they're trying to get information, and instead of killing him, they leave him in a closet where the nice lady eventually unties him <laughs> and he just gets won over by eavesdropping to be over on the side of these uh, samurai to the extent that when the samurai have a triumphant moment, he leaves the closet and he's jumping around and celebrating for a moment until he realizes that, no, he really shouldn't be doing that. He <laughs> goes back to the closet and closes <laughs> the door. <laughs> but the ending of the film 
is very strange because it's inconsistent with the entire tone that was set up. The henchman played by Nakadai, for his honor, challenges him to one final duel. Mm -hmm. And to nobody's surprise, Mifune wins the great sword fight, but to my surprise a little bit, his killing blow leads to a gloriously over-the-top arterial spurt of blood shooting all over the place when we really haven't seen any blood at all up until this point. Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, geyser of the stuff pours <laughs> out. And is he an early inspiration for Peter Jackson <laughs> on it? If not actually straight up Takashi McKay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that tone at the end is kind of all all wrong. Because why does it need to be a gloriously ex exploitation manner on a film that was basically working on the level of silliness up until that point? Right. And also, we don't really hate this villain to the point where we hated his counterpart in Yojimbo. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it actually would have made more sense to have this happen in the first movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, overall, my impression of this is it's an enjoyable film. But Kurosawa has been establishing such a record of excellence that it's a little bit of a surprise to come across something that's only really good. Mm. And to me, it's interesting that how, while he's explored similar movies, but he's always tried to explore different aspects for it. But this seems to me is the first case where he's explicitly parroting his own work. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think this was sort of a work that was imposed on him. And, and I wonder how the success, in a way, shows how the vast success that he had with Yojimbo proved to be maybe one of the things that limited him maybe even more than the earlier part of his career, or at least the part after the wartime situation had eased off. Yojimbo became such an iconic character that he would come back in a non-Kurosawa film in the uh, very popular Zatuichi, the Blind Swordsman series, there'd be an episode called Zatuichi Meets Yojimbo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the superhero crossovers, very early rendition. <laughs> For <yes>. sure. <laughs> I'm so happy and you're so kind. You want more money, of course, I don't mind. Moving on to our next film, 93's High and Low is Kurosawa's return to the contemporary police procedural. Mifune plays Gando, the wealthy shoe baron whose family resides in a mansion on the hill overlooking the city's squalor. When it looks like his young son is kidnapped and held for ransom, Gando faces some fateful choices as the police try to break the case. Whereas other Kurosawa movies have been great in their own way, I think High and Low shares something very special with Ikiru in that it is an overabundance of greatness. Why, why do I say that? Because it's one kind of great movie that's followed by 
a completely different kind of movie that's great in its own way. And as the movie goes on, it changes to become yet another kind of film still. And each one is remarkable in its own way. You know, it's almost kind of intimidating to watch and take in so many Kurosawa's in a row because you do get this consistent level of quality. But then when you hit something like High and Low, I, I'd agree with you. I, I think it's the best film we've talked about so far in this discussion. But the, the Akiru analogy is really interesting because they are two films that work in two parts. The first hour of the film basically almost entirely takes place in this penthouse apartment of Gondos. This is an exemplary example of set design because you see through the windows the city below and it really puts the title of the film in perspective visually and even more so when you consider that in Japan, the original title of the film would be translated not uh, high and low, but heaven and hell. Hmm. The idea of that one part of society is considered heaven by some characters and where they live is considered hell. It's explicitly mentioned in the script. Mm -hmm. So that justifies the, that's kind of the basis for its original title. But I actually find that high and low, the title high and low is an actual improvement as a title because it is very much has on its mind the idea of different levels of society and the anger that comes from people seeing this disparity. I think in that context, it's very, very interesting of the dilemma that the film starts with, which is about, like any great crime drama, it's about the corporate machinations in the shoe business. A common noir trope, if I've ever heard <laughs> one. Before even the main detective action starts, we are given a conflict between our main character, who wants to make shoes that are stylish, but durable and affordable, and the conflict he has between the other members of the board of the shoe company who want to make more of a profit by making material shoddy. And so I think it's actually not a coincidence, but part of one of the movie's key points that our main character says, other fashions are worn and meant to be discarded, but what we build a human has to support a whole human's weight. So it's not incidental. That that's the profession that he comes from. At least I don't think I was. No, that's a really good observation. And there's so many levels to this character that Mifune plays. And again, he's such a great actor. He's showing different sides of himself in each movie because there is this idealist element to him where he's in business, but he's not fully mercenary. He enjoys the art to his craft, yet at the same time, we deal in some of the same class issues that the samurai movies, particularly Seven Samurai, ah. has dealt with when it's revealed that he believes his son has been kidnapped. But, and we're, uh, spoiler alert here, although this does happen early in the film, it turns out that it's his chauffeur's son 
that gets kidnapped. The the kidnappers have picked up the wrong boy, and so they want this ransom. But the moral weight of the film now shifts as he's no longer dealing with, well, how much of my money do I put at risk? How much of my career do I put at risk to save my own son, of which there was no question, turns into how much do I put at risk for my employee's son? An employee who, at this point in Japanese culture and at his level of wealth, is somebody who considers himself very much an underling. Exactly. One of the highest values of this film is that it provides a great multifaceted look at one hell of an ethical quandary. Mifune's Gondo has put up so much at stake for his job, his entire, his very livelihood. In fact, I think he even makes a statement to say, if I can't do this, I'm not a person anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I am anymore, which is kind of interesting in the context of people's identity in the bad sleep world. I mean, now that I'm kind of thinking about it. And he has that on one side. He has this balance and his responsibility towards his family on one side. And then just the feeling of an innocent child who could be hurt or killed. Mifune does this so well. He's always been a powerhouse at delivering emotion. But this might be one of, if not the, finest performance of his, at least in my opinion, because he is a powerhouse of four or five conflicting emotions that are continually roiling in him. Yeah, there are emotions that he reveals, and then there are emotions that he can't reveal, emotions that he has to keep hidden, and, and he expresses those just as well. And he is aided by some of the best direction in Kurosawa's career. He's actually changed his filming style starting with high and low. He's going to, at this point on, deal with a lot longer takes. And his strategy in the penthouse scenes are to basically shoot extended scenes from two different angles and then splice them together, uh, as mm. opposed to the kind of robust coverage he would have used previously. That leads to the first of many Kurosawa movies that are going to have takes that are three, four, five, six minutes long. Mmm, that's a great point, man, because, like, it harkens back to what our earlier podcast on Bellatar in a kind of unique way, because when you do a long take on a, on a very intense moment where people are at these heightened levels of emotions... When the cuts that we expect as an audience do not happen, we feel like we're there in this room and we get a kind of claustrophobia, not necessarily of space, but of time mm -hmm. as this feeling that we can't escape this dilemma that our main characters have to deal with. Right. Some of these scenes involve phone conversations with the kidnapper. And man, the tension is ratcheted up through every level of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So true. And also similar on Ikiru and with, in a way, to Sidney uh, Lumet's 12 Angry Men, his wife, his dedicated and loyal subordinate, or at least we think, mm -hmm. 
and the police who are called in to uh, look further to find the kidnapped child and the chauffeur, they all have their own perspective, their own motivations, and their own thing that they want Gondo to do. And they, and during the course of this initial section, they all have their say, and they all make, in their own way, valid points about different things that this person finds important to himself. And it, it should be mentioned that the uh, head policeman on the case is played by uh, Tetsuyo Nakadai, who could not be more different than he is in the Yojimbo movies. And and you begin to see just how flexible a player he can be in the, in the Kurosawa canon by being this voice of reason trying to put this case together. Very, yeah. very good point, man. Like the... It's not quite the amazing whiplash of seeing uh, Takashi Shimura be his character in Ikiru and then his character in Seven Samurai, but I found tremendous fun in this podcast just looking at how he's just a wild, bug-eyed maniac in Yojimbo. But here, he is such a great figure of sympathy, both understanding how tough it is for Mifune's Gondo to do the things he needs to do, and it's, it strikes a, not a balance, but a great counterpoint because he clearly wants Mifune to do this, but he understands why Mifune makes the actions he does. Yes. And this would be a great film if the first part were the entire movie. If we were just dealing with Gondo's ethical quandary and his responses to the kidnapping, but the movie has shown us high or heaven as represented by this penthouse, but it's then going to turn around and take us to the kidnappers point of view. But first Kurosawa will present one of his greatest action sequences and certainly the best action sequence he's done in a contemporary film, which is the money drop from the train. And they're on a real train. The plot has to have them sending a briefcase out the window while they are not sure if the kidnappers are there on the train with them. There are some camera moves in this scene that are mind blowing. This is like, this is why we're, how we're watching a master at work in every single bit of this train sequence. It's so exciting and presented in such a continually compelling way through a, like you said, some astounding handheld camera work combined with the perfect sounds of the, the trains chugging motion with the music swelling at exactly the right moment when the handoff uh, takes place. Just a great depiction of this kidnapper's scheme. And that is seemed to be a very clear transition point because after this, it becomes an amazing police procedural. Yes, but ironically enough, this is based on a uh, 1959 novel called King's Ransom by Ed McBain. And you would think that as we go into the more noir-type material, that would be the stuff from the book. But in fact, the book mostly covers the first half. Hmm. And much of the second half is added by Kurosawa and his writers. Oh, how fascinating. Because Ed McBain is 
well regarded as somebody who values honestly depicted police procedural work. I haven't had a chance to read King's Ransom to see how that compares, but I had had a chance to read some of his other work, and he has his dedication towards the idea of people who solve crimes by doing the, the grunt work of looking at records, interviewing witnesses, and so forth. And so it's a very interesting that you mentioned that the second half was not McBain because Kurosawa very much honors that spirit. I should clarify that that I, from what I understand, it's not a absolute cutoff point with the first second half because there is a lot of police procedural stuff that goes on in the first half of the film. It's just what's emphasized is Gondo's struggle. Whereas when we get to the second half of the film, the police procedure material takes center stage. <laughs> right. It's almost like the train takes us from an, an almost internal setting, from an internal struggle to external world where the problem is, let's, where, where is this kidnapper? Where, how can we find him? What are the details that will help lead us to him? To which I find this is a very much of an expansion on the kind of montage that Kurosawa did so brilliantly in Stray Dog. Because whether it's the train, the money, the suitcase that the money is put in to use for the transfer, where the kidnapper was viewing the house on the hill, all of which are depicted in, in, in a fascinating montage as witnesses, as how evidence is collected, and all the details to which the team in several sequences where they're in an, the world's hottest police station <laughs> are combining to and coalescing to try and find a solution to this mystery. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Stray Dog because it would make a great double feature with High and Low. That palpable heat is so present in both films. The other thing it has in common is it tries to take the point of view of the villain. While we're certainly not siding with the villain, the villain is motivated. We understand why they're doing what they do. And so in this case, you have this uh, wonderful enigmatic performance by Sutomu Yamazaki, who is always looking up from his hovel at this the, the building that we've spent so much of the movie looking down from. Now we look up at this building mm. that dominates the hill it's on. Exactly. Mm -hmm. His first appearance ties into that very depiction of the building in a way that's like so brilliantly poetic and insightful in multiple levels. The, I also call it a Kurosawa special of how, <laughs> how awesome the singular moment is. Because it starts with two police investigating a telephone book where maybe the kidnapper was watching. And as they look upwards at the house on the hill, one of them says, you know, that house does look pretty awful. <laughs> like yeah. it's looking down on everyone. As they walk past, Kurosawa, in a brilliant move, moves the camera downwards to show in a nice quote on Drunken Angel, maybe, the reflection of that same building in a fetid pool of water. And as the reflections of the police move in one direction, you see the reflection of a lone figure moving in the opposite direction. And that is our kidnapper's first appearance. And speaking of reflections, 
as the chase gets closer, the kidnapper starts to don the most evocative pair of sunglasses yes. I have seen in any film. The sunglasses make him look so freaky. And whereas in earlier scenes, they hint at trying to get at his motivations. Once it gets to the point where he puts those sunglasses on, he's dehumanized. So as the police start to see the world he lives in and the pain that he's caused through his drug dealing, we see a lot of harrowing scenes of addicts writhing around in the slums. Yeah. Yet through these sunglasses, which reflect everything about him and make him seem like such a even more of a threat it ups the suspense i had the weirdest reaction when he is trying to get uh, some heroin and he's in this pursuit while wearing these sunglasses because while the film shows him and explores his motivations his main internal character comes across to me in a, as a mystery. And his outfit with the sunglasses is a nice, bright, white shirt. Plus with that sunglasses, and he has a very dapper kind of contemporary-for-the-time hairdo. So I was just in a weird place for me because it's like, wait, I'm looking at risky business hmm. Tom Cruise playing collaterals tom cruise <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> the, the ambiguity yet like sinister edge of the latter done with the boyish charm of the former and just contrasted in a really interesting way that combination of boyishness and malevolence was a very fascinating to witness as is what i think the movie does as a kind of a third act because while the procedural stuff is dealt with in a great, practical, super efficient, wonderfully compelling as like the best police dramas can be. You're always being given like just tons of information that leads to another clue or another development. And you're just so drawn in now on how this net is trying to close in and which leads to a great sense of cat and mouse pursuit, including a spectacular bit of irony or right by a window displaying shoes mm, where he yeah. sees Mufune's Gondo character also look, uh, looking and decides to pay him a visit. The, even the cops are amazed by, oh my God, the stones on this guy. <laughs> but there's a moment when he visits the heroin row where all these uh, junkies are just swarming on every coming, coming in to try to get, see if they have money or drugs or both. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a turn into making a, the same kind of nightwear world, which I think he was exploring in the Bad Sleep well. It comes across as like almost metaphysically sinister, never more so than in a phenomenal shot where it's just, he's looking at a particular female junkie who's leaning against a, a doorway and you see him in the background and his glasses have the perfect evil glow right in the corner as you just see her writhing arm as she inside the doorframe as she staggers to get up. Well, I think that might be a good argument for the heaven and hell title here because yes. hell is depicted. It's, it's, it's depicted in a very expressionistic way. And 
couldn't be visually more contrasted to the first part. So right, the heat also is not uh, mm-hmm. probably not a coincidence here. It maintains a religious allegory thing that the earlier stuff in uh, Stray Dog may not. For sure. And you also have a very brave decision to not include much of Toshiro Mifune in this section. The star of the movie is now absent for most of the second half. Which is another connection to Ikiru, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. So much of the first part of the movie is about Mifune and his actions, and so much of the second half is the result of those actions and how society has to deal with that. But then when he comes back after the kidnapper is caught and he wants one last confrontation Hmm. with Gondo in the jail cell on death row, and somehow... Once you think we've already explored all the levels of this characters, we get even more. Because Gondo is now no longer the industry giant he was. He now kind of has to start over. But he's equipped to. Yet still, as the kidnapper confronts him, there's this real primal pain that you're getting from this character at what he perceives as his unfair lot in life. You know, for a film that has given us so much drama, so many levels, so much character complexity, and the thrills of a thriller, it holds its themes and its quality all the way to the end. For sure. I would even say it pushes it one extra level with that confrontation. As we said on Reflections, you can faintly see a reflection of each character as you cut to the the shots of them conferring with each other. And it's doing a couple of really interesting things. For one thing, as the uh, kidnapper talks, he is doing as much as he can to undercut the idea of very simple explanations towards why he does what he does. He's like, I think at one point he explicitly says, I'm not going to tell you my life story. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you a pat psychological reason for why, for why I did that. It's also fascinating how he turns into, as you said, like he goes into a primal scream of pure rage as he reach it tries to reach towards Mifune, who for I believe the first time in the movie is calm and has found a center. So what is that saying? Is this anger and rage that had built up was something that Mifune was able to successfully excise, but the kidnapper never never was? Or was this something that the kidnapper was always going to have as a part of him by living in hell, or his version. Right, it's the age-old question of nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. And the film doesn't answer it for us. It doesn't give us anything pat to hold on to. We're left with a lot of questions about both of these characters, these mirror opposites to each other. In like an almost an anti-Rashomon development, it ends with a big steel curtain closing off from this guy's angry ranting 
and Mifune staring at this blank wall. Where are those answers? We're not going to get them. So I think we agree that this is one of the high points of Kurosawa's career. Can his subsequent film get higher or lower in his next movie, Redbeard, in 1965? Dr. My Eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without pride Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Redbeard marks Kurosawa's last collaboration with Mifune, who plays a gruff, small-town doctor. When a younger, more modern, for the 1800s, apprentice <laughs> arrives, his interactions with various patients and Redbeard himself sheds light on the kind of doctor and man he wants to be. Well, I mentioned earlier about how it's amazing how High and Low looks like it was several great movies put into one. This is a kind of a film where it's several movies that don't seem to match with each other at all. Yes, this was based on a series of short stories. Mm, that makes sense. But not only that, but he also imported just one character and a sequence from Dostoevsky and a book called uh, Humiliated and Insulted. So <laughs> we kind of have a bit of a explosion in the writer's room. I think we have a lot of tonal inconsistencies, certainly a film that's beautifully shot. But if film is a visual medium, it's also a storytelling medium. And I think that's where Redbeard falls short. I, that's, I think you put that really nicely as the idea that the writing room has exploded and we are seeing the documentary remnants of what passes for 18 different stories assembled together. As I was watching, I started noticing as you would meet a certain patient and they would have a very drawn out story they would tell and then they would disappear, never to be mentioned again. My first uh-oh moment of the movie was when they have a guy at nearly the end of his life goes back to his village and he's relating his story to all the rapt villagers about what happened between him and his wife. As he's relating this story, you're seeing things from his point of view and part of his story involved that the wife had disappeared from the scene. When they reunite, the wife explains what she was up to to which you show a very, very well-directed scene of her wandering around through the ruins of a town after an earthquake. And it looks really good, and I was enchanted there for a moment until it occurred to me, wait a minute, am I actually seeing a guys relating a flashback of some other character <laughs> relating a flashback? <laughs> No, 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 that's not allowed, man. <laughs> you can't, you can't have it depicted on her perspective when she's telling you and you are telling the villagers. <laughs> and, and it's a story that bears no connection 
to the main story of the film, which is kind of abandoned. We're yeah. supposed to be concerned with this new doctor who's in this clinic where he doesn't want to be in the mysterious red beard is this authoritarian presence who can only be spoken of in hushed tones mm -hmm. and how is he going to get along with him and how will they end up working together and as it turns out after maybe one or two tense scenes they're just fine together so that, <laughs> that, that entire build-up at the beginning is never followed through on, but instead, like you said, we, we go into these excursions into these patient stories, which may have their own merits, but don't really fit into the story as a whole. Mm. We've seen all these different genres that Kurosawa has explored over the course of his career. Here, we get to a different genre, the general hospital soap opera drama combined with possibly a hint of what would be known as house <laughs> from in modern times. We're getting the, of the, uh, the harsh doctor who is constantly railing against the powers that be, but secretly has the heart of gold <laughs> and has his own particular philosophy. I guess the idea, maybe the, the lone samurai warrior is hospital administrator. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if that's not enough, you also have, the insane woman locked up in the adjoining house who will seduce and kill any man who comes in her sight known as the mantis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally we end up focusing on the Dostoevsky part of the narrative, which is this young 12 year old girl who's been forced into a life of prostitution and is basically rescued by our doctors and is trying to recover and find her sense of self. This all happens in the second part of what is a three-hour film, and in this case, really feels it. <laughs> so true, because you don't know going in how absolutely an episodic and non-related these things are going to be. When the movie starts, I was first thinking it's going to be some slice-of-life look at how people have to deal in with the destitute situations in this clinic, only to come across flashback after melodramatic flashback. And then, as the movie goes on, realism seems to get slowly, slowly leaks out of the movie as Redbeard's character develops into some sort of very inappropriate cross between a Marcus Welby doctor and a Beggar Vance fountain of wisdom and guidance for the characters. When they're out there to rescue this teenage prostitute, for example, he makes some statement like, well, her body is fine, but her mind has been scalded. <laughs> you know, is that his expert medical opinion? Yeah, that, oh, is that, that, your, that your diagnosis? <laughs> Mind you, the approach to medicine will actually get much worse later in the movie, <laughs> which will point I'll bring up later. But that is easily eclipsed by a moment where the madam of this brothel does not want her to leave, so she calls upon some goons to threaten Redbeard and his assistant are erstwhile main character who has been very peripheral up until this point. I jokingly thought, 
well, hey, you know, you are threatening Toshiro Mifune. I mean, would it be crazy if this doctor would go and actually just go kick their all their asses just like every other <laughs> Mifune movie, uh, at least the samurai ones? And it does it. It actually does it. <laughs> I mean, talk about a samurai hospital administrator. That's literally. <laughs> and the thing is that the movie realizes what a ridiculous contrivance it is. Because it gives Mifune a line saying, now, as a doctor, I know all the ways that you can harm a human body. <laughs> and uses this as an excuse to have him fight hand-to-hand combat where he breaks people's limbs <laughs> to say, oh, see, he's using his doctor abilities. <laughs> oh, my. It was such a ridiculous, like, contrivance that just made me think, that somebody would desperately said, hey, we have Mifune, he's not kicking somebody's ass, what's going on? And just so clumsily jury-rigged into the story that it caused me to just go, what the hell am I looking at here? You know, when the film started, I first thought it was going to be kind of this art house departure from what had been going on with Kurosawa's uh, samurai films And it slowly dawned on me that he's actually creating a crowd-pleasing melodrama, or to put it less charitably, kind of a soap opera. Yeah. And then by having this very tonally inappropriate fight occur, not just in the wrong scene, but in the wrong movie, (laughs) I was kind of like... Yeah, this has gone off the rails. This is not in any way taking its own premise seriously. And it gets worse as we start (laughs) focusing in part two on the young girl. And she has a crush on the younger doctor, goes in and out of sickness, and then the doctor gets sick and she has to take care of him and then this little boy shows up Mm -hmm. and he likes her and it's just one thing on top of another that is all set up and no payoff it's really interesting that you mentioned the word payoff because i kind of think this was a payoff for kurosawa i get the sense it was a little bit of a paycheck movie Because with the introduction of the little kid, it reminds me of a concept in how Hollywood markets films. They call certain kinds of films four-quadrant movies. Uh, They're so called that because there are like the ideas of these four demographic groups. And the movie can appeal to all of them. It'll make a lot more money. And the groups are male and female. And then people over 25 and then people under 25. This is a kind of formula or a combination that you see a lot in older films where you have rousing action and then romance Mm -hmm. and then comic relief, a very, very basic level comic relief that's aimed for kids. The idea is whether it's a family or a couple or individuals going to a movie, everyone will be entertained by the film. So it will get more ticket sales as a result. And we're getting the discarded version of that here. Melodrama in one sequence, hardcore Chuck Norris level <laughs> action in another sequence. But to be honest, I've never seen such a contrived way of coming in a fight 
And I've seen 75% of Steven Seagal's films. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, no, no trope is really left uncovered here. So true. But I don't want to be too cynical about the motivations for making it, just because I could also imagine a scenario in which he just wants to do a different kind of film. And I think had this worked, we'd be touting this as an experimental tour de force. But because it doesn't work, we're left with something we don't quite know what to do with, especially because of the level of excellence that he's shown so far. It kind of doesn't make sense to get a film that's kind of this sloppy. The sloppiness, frankly, is one of the bigger indictments that someone could level against Akira Kurosawa. Because some, while other directors, such as Altman... Or, or Ken Russell, they revel in sloppiness, mm-hmm. in, in putting in scenes that don't quite fit and, and seeing what interesting results come around. Kurosawa has demonstrated such a mastery of tonal control in so many of his earlier films that it is all the more crazy to see how starkly out of control this film is. And another thing that he is known for is that he is able to deal with really dark subjects and very big heightened emotional moments, but without a trace of sentimentality. Even in High and Low, those conflicts are given a nice level of honest stature Mm -hmm. and don't descend into pure mawkishness, which happens over and over and over again in this film. When the little kid starts in on a romance, it is amazing to see that while Hidden Fortress could be the inspiration for Star Wars A New Hope, this romance is the inspiration for young Anakin from Phantom Menace. (laughs) It's that bad, complete with kid much younger than the girl he's interested in, mumbling through, oh, I think you're awful pretty. Oh, geez. And, And right at the moment where I was thinking, well, the only thing that could be more blatant attempt to pull on the audience's heartstrings is the lonely orphan romantic kid. Will be the dying lonely orphan kid. That's where the movie goes. Time and time again. When I would think the most cynical way of, of presenting pure, unadulterated sap to an audience. And this is the move that the movie, movie makes in almost like a way of like a reaction to how well controlled his earlier films were. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Before moving on to greener pastures, I do want to give this movie a a little bit of credit on the visual sense, because he does continue his level of excellence there, especially with his use of lighting. Many of the rooms are lit by candles, so the shadows of the characters are very evocative, particularly the introduction to the young girl they rescue from the brothel. She's shot in a way that her face is in total darkness, except for her eyes. And at one point, she wakes up and moves up in shadow and hits the the lighting that's uh, supposedly from the candle in a way that just lights her eyes. And so these are some 
technical pleasures in a movie that, as you well described, has gone far off the rails by this point. Mm. I think Kurosawa in this film was so unconcerned with this control over the shape of the story. He was using it more as a launching platform to just try actual experiments in pure film direction. There are some straight-up magnificent shots in here, such as a dying person's shadowy arms reaching for the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, during this earthquake sequence is depicted magnificently, complete with a person uh, alternating between light and shadow as clouds move across, and an image of people yelling at a well where the camera moves down to the well to see the reflection and something drops to cause ripples to form. It's a wonderfully evocative shot, but unlike so many of his other films where the shots are filled to the brim with intent and meaning and potential implications as to the story, here they come across as nothing but exercises. Like Rashomon, he uses a lot of rain in this film. He uses a lot of snow and a lot of wind none of which really match what's happening in there, but it was just that he want, seemed that he wanted to make a particular effect. And I think the well is actually a great fulcrum in, in this story because that particular shot looks brilliant. But why are they yelling in a well, you may ask? <laughs> well, they're yelling in a well because the poor kid is sick and he has an incredibly bathos-filled speech and suddenly everyone in this hospital doesn't want little uh, Chobo, I believe is his name, to die, to which they are in the yell, yelling, Chobo, come back, Chobo! And they literally say, well, they say if you yell the name into the well, it will cause the spirit to come back from the land of the dead. And this is be ridiculously absurd if this wasn't the employees of a medical clinic, <laughs> is there a three and a half hour cut where they're uh, desperately urging Redbeard to bring out the voodoo doll to help save poor Chopo? <laughs> like, it seems to be kind of a really, really basic abdication of everything you guys know about medicine. Yes, un unlike most <laughs> Kurosawa films, this one's uh, long enough. But dis <laughs> despite, right. our, despite our objections... Redbeard turned out to be a, a pretty big hit in Japan for Kurosawa. That's fascinating, but man. After that, his story takes a bit of a dark turn. If you didn't think we'd find a commonality between our last podcast on Edgar Wright and this one, uh, there mm. seems to be a renewal of the Ant-Man story mm. of a film one is hired for, but through studio interference, uh, it was not to be. And in this case, that film is called Torah, Torah, Torah. Three explanation points. A historic joint production between Hollywood and Japanese studios with Richard Fleischer directing the American portions, Akira Kurosawa directing the Japanese portions. And this was going to be the story of Pearl Harbor. Kurosawa spent two years on this project, in the writing of it, in the pre-production of it, and when they started filming, he got fired in two weeks. Huh. Tora 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 went on to be made with two other Japanese directors, and Kurosawa's reputation really took a hit. We can guess, knowing how much of 
a genius. He really has proven himself to be how inappropriate it would be to try to fit him into this joint studio gigantic project where he would have faced so many restrictions uh, on his artistic instincts. The international cooperation probably put a, helped put a stop to something like that. Yeah. It's one thing when you have producers from two different continents saying how you're going to, uh, questioning how you're going to depict things. Still, getting canned after two weeks is a pretty dramatically quick exit. Right, and it had a dramatic effect. He ended up making a film called Dodeskadan, which was his first color film. It was somewhat experimental and very much flopped at the box office. Career-wise, there certainly would be uh, other reasons. He spiraled into a deep depression and in 1971 uh, attempted to kill himself. Fortunately, was a failed suicide attempt. It was the darkest point of his life. But as we pick up his film career from there, we definitely see a change in attitude. I think a greater seriousness, a greater sense of mortality. And even though something might have been lost as far as the rousing excitement that he was able to provide in earlier films, when we now head into late Kurosawa, we get something very special to take its place. He had, at this point, sort of fallen out of favor in general. Japan had already experienced their version of the new wave by that point. And there was a pervasive criticism that his films were, quote-unquote, too Western, and that they weren't authentically dealing with the, the Japanese experience but were an attempt to pander towards Western influences. So he had to go and struggle on both a creative level and on a financial level to go and make films. But in one of the better developments in cinema history, which often has a really poor reputation towards artists in their late period and supporting them, Wells is the classic example of mm -hmm. such. But... Kurosawa was given an opportunity to let his talent shine through on an epic canvas that Wells certainly could have used, but never had the chance to. Kurosawa, ironically, had a break from his time in the wilderness of cinema financing, dealing with the wilderness in his film, Durzu Usawa, in 1975. It's his only film made outside Japan, and it follows an early 1902 mapping expedition through the untamed Russian wilderness. There, this Russian expedition encounters Dursu Isala, who is an indigenous hunter and tracker who joins the expedition and befriends its capitan. So to the rescue comes the Soviet Union studio Mosfilm, 
which gave Kurosawa the opportunity to create his one and only 70 millimeter film. Mm. And it looks and feels utterly different from anything else Kurosawa has done. In fact, it looks a little like what one of our other favorite directors does, Werner Herzog. Yes. It it was filmed in the actual uh, wilderness of eastern Russia in the areas near the Chinese borders, which during the time the film is set was very much unexplored territory. And we end up with this extremely touching two-hander between a Russian explorer named Arzenev and basically a mountain man, a native of a tribe called the Goldie, named Dersu Zala. And these actors create such chemistry with each other. It's not a startlingly original story. It's very much kind of the noble savage trope. And, you know, we discussed in the last film tropes falling apart, Mm-hmm. But sometimes they really work. And I think this is an example like that. The actor Maxim Munzuk, who plays Dersu, has this amazingly likable, soulful quality to him. He is this innocent. He refers to everything in the woods as people. The fire is people. The animal is people. And through this kind of broken English, uh, he beca- or uh, broken Russian, that yes. is. <laughs> it's translated into broken English uh, yeah. in the subtitles. He becomes a character that I really do adore. It's a lot of fun to watch the growth of these two characters beginning to work together and trust each other and, and friendship set upon this magnificent wilderness that is shot in such an evocative way. If you've seen the Werner Herzog film, The Enigma of Casper Hauser, but you thought, I always want to see it on this gigantic 70 millimeter frame. <laughs> Derzu Usala's your movie. It's such an interesting companion piece to Herzog's film. Like Bruno S., who plays Casper Hauser, He's a very unusual figure, but really, really compelling and charismatic and winning. You might not quite understand him, but you really want to follow him around mm-hmm. and see what he's going see what he's going to do next. And this combines with how wonderfully uniquely resourceful he is in a way that both enchants and proves amazingly helpful to the uh, Russian expedition. Now, Kurosawa adjusts his filmmaking style into a very slow pace with this film, and he'll continue that on with his next film. It's almost in a contemplative style for sure. how detailed he gets with how he depicts everyday life in the wilderness. Probably, for me, the most impressive set piece is when the two get lost from the expedition and it starts to snow, and night's about to fall, and Dirzu announces that if they don't find some shelter, that they won't survive the night. He proceeds to lead the two of them 
in desperately chopping down as many reeds as possible to create shelter. Yes, it's kind of like the quote-unquote action sequence Mm -hmm. of that part, but it's done so well. His depiction of the weather, of the storm, of this environment is so vivid that we become entirely invested through both the characters and the filmmaking. That sequence is an absolute standout. And it's so fascinating when you actually look at it in the context of so many of Herzog's work. Because the topic at hand is man versus nature, specifically how inadequate man usually is and how indifferent nature is. But I look at what that scene shows and where Herzog seems to show this conflict in terms of overabundance. There's too much danger, too much rain, too much mud. Things are actively oppressive. But Kurosawa approaches it from the totally different angle. Here the danger is not from overabundance, from excess but it comes from bleakness. Mm -hmm. It comes from the absence. So much suspense is drawn by simply showing the sun at different levels as it's descending through this uh, Russian sky. And the impending menace just comes from the wind that could destroy them and just like leave them in a formless nothingness, which is a sense of menace that is distinct from how Herzog does Mm -hmm. that. And what saves them is the use of the camera tripod, mm-hmm. which is what they use to prop up these reeds to create this shelter. Mm-hmm. And not long after that, we get a scene where the camera tripod is used for its more traditional use to take pictures of the two men and cement their friendship. It's constantly working on these two levels of the personal and the environmental. So true. Mm -hmm. As the film progresses, they lose touch with each other for some years and then reunite. But Durzu now has to struggle with aging, with the idea of what happens to a man who lives in a wilderness when he can't see as well, when his instincts aren't as sharp as they used to be. And the sadness that Durzu expresses his loss of the only kind of life he knows is really a profound one. I didn't quite feel that as much as you did, partly because it gets very explicitly metaphorical Mm -hmm. as a tiger makes the scene and Usala feels that the tiger has sort of pursued him. To me, it kind of was a little bit obvious as the idea of an impending danger such even when he makes his first appearance. And I think the film, by the end, loses a bit of momentum when it takes place in the city. Usala is so very, very obstinate in not being able to adjust well. But also the family is kind of oblivious in terms of just trying to go and accommodate a person who they should be very, very well aware is getting to a very unusual place. Yeah, the city scenes are the ones that are probably most evoke the enigma of Casper Hauser, mm-hmm. although it's a much more 
optimistic, mostly because it's based on Arzenev's own recollection of these events. But I have to tell you, I remained charmed throughout this last part of the movie as well. Durzu doesn't understand why he can't just chop down trees in the town. He doesn't understand why he can't put a tent up anywhere he wants in the town. He doesn't understand why people want to live in boxes when they could be free and live outdoors. Again, these are not original concepts, but for me, this was sold far better than in most other versions of this kind of story I've seen. And again, on a pure emotional level, I remain touched by this movie and this performance. Okay. The one that I value this movie the most is twofold. One of which is how, maybe for budgetary reasons, Kurosawa had refined his technique. There is not a lot of close-ups in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And very few pans on it. And what he does with the restraint on the individual shots he makes. More dedicated towards containing our interest through events that happen in a mostly static frame. To levels he has not really done before to this degree. And that leads to the second part of which is so many of these details are brought in in what you hinted at, a contemplative way, where you're not really following a conventional plot of this happens and then this happens and this happens. It's a collection of incidents. But you pick up so many interesting facets on how the Russians on the expedition in part one just grow more and more enamored by Asala just by the fascinatingly unique things that he says and does and the ways that like he goes and helps out. Like one of my favorite scenes is a moment about a third of the way through where they find an abandoned house. And while Usala is picking up leaves and branches to try and repair this and make it worthy to stand for snow and rain, the other soldiers are having fun in this house, like just hiding in different rooms, slowly poking their heads out of doors. Meanwhile, the captain is off to the side, more and more amused by how both his soldiers act and how uh, how Usala is uncaring. He just needs to get down to business. And it's also kind of interests me how strictly delineated these two halves are separated by the intermission. Well, this is a, a pattern that now we've seen for the third time with Kurosawa. Right. It, it starts with the Kiru, and then he does it with high and low, and repeats that structure with Derzuizawa. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting to see if, if like, you're getting a different perspective on one versus the other. It cannot be an accident because Usala leaves the scene at the end of at the first section, and he leaves the scene in a totally different way at the end of the second. Exactly. And, hmm. The first half seems to be him building up to why people would be enchanted by him, showing all the different ways he has value. And then maybe the second half could be how that value just gets diminished over time. Well, his self-worth, at least, because he can only view his own value in terms of how he can live in the wilderness. He knows no other way. 
So his actual worth, which is seen by the Capitan and his family, <laughs> right. is something that, because of his upbringing, he can't really relate to. In a crazy way, how could that relate to Kurosawa? There's a great series about Kurosawa's work that you can find in most Criterion editions called It's Wonderful to Create. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be really fascinating to look at those two halves of Usala and look at that kind of fulcrum where he attained popularity at his maximum, but then found his creative ambitions got frustrated and led to a really dark point in the second part of his career. But then to a renaissance that many people believe started with his next film. And when it's 12 o'clock, we climb the stairs. We never knock, for nobody's there. Just me and my shadow, all alone and The setting of 1980s Kagamusha is Japan's Sengoku period under the rule of the Takeda clan daimyo Shingen, whose brother has found a thief who looks identical to the clan leader. When Shingen is wounded during battle, the thief must learn convincingly to become his double or Kagamusha if their rule is to survive. Like I'd said earlier, this is a great example of how a person who was used to be able to make such amazing images and such amazing movie moments on a wide canvas, he doesn't get a, a vast wasteland to try to make a movie like he did in Usala. He gets that canvas. He gets a budget. He gets a scope to be able to make the film that he wants to make. The first thing you notice when you start Kagamusha are the two names on the credits that you do not expect to see in a Kurosawa film, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. We talked about how much trouble Kurosawa was having getting any kind of funding or support from the Japanese film industry. By this point in time, the new Hollywood film brats had made their mark. Star Wars, inspired by Akira Kurosawa, was the biggest film in existence. And these guys wanted to return the favor for their sensei. And so when the Japanese film industry would not provide the funding for a film on the scale of Kagamusha, Lucas and Coppola went to 20th Century Fox and brokered a deal to where the 20th Century Fox would put up much of the money and create this partnership. The money is well spent. Mm -hmm. Very fascinating to look at this history of how the movie got made, seeing as how the movie's subject is about an imposter and his attempt to make use of stuff that's not his own, which makes it very cool that how his initial profession was as a thief mm -hmm. <laughs> but what does he get to steal now it's probably <laughs> it's actually probably the ultimate example of identity theft <laughs> <laughs> right although consensual 
Yes. In, in this case. Now, Tatsuya Nakadai is now going to move front and center in the Kurosawa universe as he plays both the daimyo or clan leader and also the double and does so wonderfully, but in a very theatrical way. The next two films we're going to discuss are very much influenced, as Throne of Blood was, by no theater. And so you're going to have some very broad and intense acting, but it's very much in the, the Japanese tradition of this theatricality where emotions are painted on actors' faces. First of all, he's unrecognizable from his earlier roles. He's yeah. not as old as his characters are. A lot of makeup has been applied, but his the way he utilizes these identities are really fascinating because it's done in a very deliberately paced way. And the Kagamusha is incorporated into this royal environment so gradually that we can appreciate each new discovery he makes on how he can live in this world he doesn't belong in. This takes what is sometimes like funny comic presence, such as in movies like Dave, but like you said, it's so deliberately presented that you have a contemplative look at it. I think it squares a circle of showing multiple levels of performance in the sense that our main character has to give a heightened performance towards his clan, towards his army, towards his mistresses. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Kurosawa and Nakadai effectively show us the human desperately trying to do a facade underneath. The reason he is uh, brought in is because of his uncanny resemblance and the fact that they are at war trying to keep their dynasty intact. Early in the film, the uh, actual ruler is wounded and he instructs uh, his subordinates that this double will need to uh, take his place for the next three years in order to in ensure the survival of the clan. And that leads to one of many visual flourishes in which the double discovers the body of the ruler in this gigantic person-size pottery jar. Yeah. Which he actually intends to rob and what the treasure he thinks might be inside of it. Right. But then he finds a exaggerated death mask of his own mirror image. Mm -hmm. And Kurosawa has been now working in color since 1970. But with this film, he's announcing his mastery of color the same way he's mastered black and white and the wide screen and the colors are so evocative and so beautiful. That's the metaphoric version of an atom bomb moment <laughs> because in addition, of course, to just seeing the end point, the fruits of his labors, this is a film that's continuing something that's shown up in some of the other films we've talked about which is the idea of what 
makes a person and what defines a person by what other people think of him. This is obviously one of the great main themes of Ikiru. It's something we also brought up today with the bad sleep well of a person who's using a name that's not his own to go on a mission that we're not aware made aware of until later. Mm-hmm. And even, I would say, it gets brought up in Yojimbo and Sanjuro of a guy who doesn't, who makes a name from what's around him. This film gets a lot of really amazing mileage out of what does it mean to rule and how much of this mantra of faking it till you make it is actually the important part of running this clan. Right. Of course, he's not actually interested in ruling. He is a figurehead that the daimyo's brother has installed. So it's interesting to see his advisors basically run his life in a way that makes it appear as if he's ruling. Because it's not for him. He feels a connection to the dead ruler with his face. And he feels a connection to his family. But it doesn't extend to kind of a ridiculous point in which he attempts any kind of authority. He knows better than that. Well, I think a lot of interesting things from the movie come just across of what does he know about himself or his place. I think the film is nicely insightful about just how little he understands and how he gains a basic understanding of mm-hmm. how to ultimately at heart to be a decent human being. Right. Um, he, he gets a more appreciation of family as he encounters his quote unquote grandson. He gets an increasing level of respect towards others as he has to deal with the various people visits and the different ceremonies and how he approaches them and gets a very, very up-close look at the devastation of war through an astounding, gigantic battle sequence two-thirds of the way through. Astounding, for sure. This is preceded by a dream sequence. Yes. That really must be seen because Kurosawa, in addition to his other skills, was a painter. So at this stage in his career, he started utilizing his paintings as storyboards. If anyone has seen Paul Schrader's take on Japanese films, Mashima, they'll remember the very theatrical, surrealistic qualities of the background and the sets. It's clear to me now that he got a lot of that from Kagamusha's dream sequence, mm. which is this astounding piece of visual artistry that really needs to be seen to be believed. I would add that Mishima also should be definitely seen. It's a, For it's sure. a remarkable it's a- film in its own right. Mm-hmm. But I completely agree with you that that stylization owes a debt to films such as Kagamusha's dream sequence, to which I actually think might even be a quotation from Kobayashi's Kwaidan. I agree completely. It's the idea of utilizing painted backdrops, which are not meant to evoke realism, but instead surrealism, 
It's very rarely used and seems to be mostly a Japanese feature, but when these masters use it, it's something you cannot take your eyes off of. The same can be said of, as you mentioned, the battle sequences. There are two big ones. The first one is fascinating because of the personal drama it involves. Mm -hmm. Basically, the Kagamusha has to sit on the battlefield impersonating the ruler and must stay calm and still so that he can inspire the troops. Meanwhile, he's just this regular guy and people are getting shot near him. People are getting killed around him. And the thing he wants to do is panic, but he can't. He's got to sit there and be still. And that's a fascinating sequence. It is in multiple ways. Kurosawa does a really brilliant move, I think, on how he depicts it. Because over the course of the film, you get to see soldiers numbering in the thousands marching to their destinations or long lines of brilliantly colored flags and banners off in the distance as these war maneuvers are being held. But in that sequence where he is supposed to remain still, I find it just amazing that you have these hundreds of soldiers, but often the danger is not shown. Mm -hmm. You would hear uh, a lieutenant say, uh, flanking on the left, and then you would see a flurry of activity, uh, and then you have hundreds of his soldiers would sally forth in the distance, and then some of them would uh, come back, but some wouldn't. But you don't see that actual conflict because it's enveloped in darkness. So it has a huge presence and a huge absence, like almost in a kind of very active, dramatic, and suspenseful yin-yang play at darkness and frenetic activity at war with each other. It's a really amazing effect. Really good point. It can't be overemphasized how much Kurosawa's filming of action sequences and filming of war has changed in this period. When we talked about the Seven Samurai in part one, we discussed these rousing action sequences. Yes. And, you know, some of the more enjoyable sword fights in Hidden Fortress and, and Yojimbo. But that attitude is gone now. Kurosawa is a man who has had enough of seeing death and seeing war. So nothing is glamorized. The violence that occurs in this film and his next are difficult to watch. And you could tell that it's done by a man who truly finds war to be tragic and awful. Yeah. It's an excitement, but it's not a rousing excitement. It's not a thrilling excitement. It's more of a gut wrenching tension kind of excitement when these armies are set off and they do battle. And the film even does have a remove from our main character, who often is just shown in the distance as various shadowy armies are moved to the left and right or front and sometimes even back of them. He denies us this kind of catharsis you get out of these people in direct conflict. 
Which I think, to your point, means he's making an explicit statement. It also fits in with theme of the subtitle of the film is the shadow warrior Mm. and the shadow imagery is present throughout. And he often thinks of himself and refers to himself and is referred to as a shadow of somebody else. This is a film based on real events, the fall of the long ruling Takeda clan. And it climaxes with the Battle of Nagashino, which uh, took place in 1575. It's one of the great battle scenes ever filmed. It's hard to watch. It's not glamorized, but the pure filmmaking of it is stunning. I mean, this sequence opens with a rainbow that the soldiers march towards. They're, They're basically being brought to ruin because the sun of the daimyo who knows all about the double is tired of living in his father's shadow. (laughs) And so to get out of, so to get out of that shadow, he makes some very stupid strategic moves that ends up in this tragedy. This real life battle is depicted in an epic fashion, but most of the time is spent in slow motion viewing of the bodies of the carnage of horses trying to right themselves after they've been felled. It's quite a piece of filmmaking. Well, the order of how that sequence goes down, I think, is critically important. And I think a big part of why this scene rivals two of the greatest statements on the folly of war, which is the attack of the line in the middle point of All's Quiet on the Western Front and the incredibly long, drawn-out pan of the wounded Confederate soldiers that happens in Gone with the Wind. Hmm. The reason that the order is important is because that clan has four elements as components of their army. The sun sends off one element to run against a line of people who are armed with muskets. And then you see this line as first one puff of smoke happens from a musket, and then hundreds as they all open fire. Mm -hmm. You don't see a single person get hit. All you see is the sun and his assistants as they react in stunned horror to what they're seeing, but we don't have the privilege to see. And he sends off a wave of a different element and a different element, each one of which has a brightly colored banner to signify them, and even has a close-up of the banner, what the banner says. Right. By the way, think about what that means when you have different colored banners arrayed in this battle with the rainbow that warned them earlier. Really good point. Right? And you again, you just keep seeing their reactions of what they saw. Then Akira Kurosawa drops the hammer Mm -hmm. on us when then you, with that slow motion sequence he described, this is what happened. And the fact of denying us that information gives it so much more of an impact, which is helped by the slow motion. This is one of the great anti-war movies 
ever made. People have said that uh, war films glamorize war, and, and a lot of them do, but there are a few special ones that don't, and I, I would say this is one. And this is also one I want to add that uses the idea of horses as truth-tellers. The horses put to use twice, because the clan leader's horse is never fooled, and in fact proves to be the undoing. <laughs> right, because at that point, too many people now have discovered that he is a double. Yeah. And he is cast out of the clan. And he's devastated because he, he actually has made this human connection, possibly the only human connections he's made in his life. Mm -hmm. And so when this climactic battle happens, he is a witness to it, even though he's no longer portraying uh, the Damyo. They've announced that he's dead, but that connection can't be broken. So when he witnesses the carnage, when he witnesses the utter destruction of the dynasty, which even though we are, are certainly led to believe they are no saints and were probably as malevolent as the army they were up against, but because he can only see his reflection <laughs> with nice this clan. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the, the movie provides these, these analogies. Yeah. And so he basically suicidally runs into battle just as the real Damio would have been expected to do if all his troops <laughs> had been killed and sacrifice himself. And now this man who has no actual connection to the clan still behaves as if he does. And he, he's killed. And in, in this wonderful final shot, he's floating down the river as the clan flag is floating upriver and they kind of just miss each other. Yes. Yes. That's so, man, that is another metaphor explosion of where the symbolism matches the point of the story so perfectly and in this poetic way that gets you to feel, to have a true understanding of the truth in the moment that a way of explaining it wouldn't quite get you to do. When you look at that ending sequence, it's this very amazing, rare thing of the reverse tragedy. Because what is like the tragedy, at least as far as like the Greek term of tragedy, it's about a powerful person who is brought down by his own character, right? Mm -hmm. But here we're getting the exact reverse of it. Because it's about a person who is a thief. He had low or almost no character. But he finds a kind of redemption through his actions of establishing a character, even establishing a level of bravery or dedication that he didn't have at the start. It's really nice that the story has him cast out, but he's not exiled. Right. He's not damned. He's not ostracized by the community. It makes no point about that. As a thief, he has every opportunity to continue his existence, but he doesn't do that. He watches and is appalled by the battle that he witnesses at the end of the movie. And why is he appalled? Why does he decide to make this? It's because he has gained 
humanity through his actions, not lost because of his virtues. So now that we've seen an amazing story about someone who had nothing briefly entering a world where he has the illusion of having everything, we move on to a story of a man who has everything and how it gets lost. That would be Ron from 1985. Ron being the Japanese word for chaos is Kurosawa's take on Shakespeare's King Lear. But in this version, the elderly warlord Hedera divides his kingdom among his sons. As the old man faces betrayal from all he trusted and is aided by those he didn't, forces of war and chaos descend on his once powerful dynasty. So, we've discussed Kurosawa's masterpieces, Rashomon, Ikiru, Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, maybe we put high and low I would. in that category, yes. And at the age of 75, Akira Kurosawa creates a film that stands as magnificent as any of those, something that is not only one of his best works, but I think one of the greatest pieces of cinema ever created. The vast swath of what he's able to do on the literal armies under his command and the visual world that he puts these armies in is amazing considering both his age and the way that his career path had just taken him to this point. To see that he gets back and is able to put this on a screen for us to enjoy is a wonderful level of appreciation for how he made the most out of this opportunity. So there are two influences for this film. One is King Lear, which we'll talk about. But there's also an old Japanese folktale that basically says that if you try to break an arrow... A single arrow, you can easily break it. But if you tie three arrows together, it cannot be broken. And that folktale is retold as the Lear character, Hidetera, is about to make the biggest mistake of his life, which is to cede his power to his sons. Now, in King Lear, they were daughters. That's one of the main differences. There are many supporting characters and subplots in Lear that are not brought over to Ron. But aside from that, it does follow the King Lear narrative pretty closely. Two of the sons are kissing up to him, basically, are telling him that he can do no wrong. You, our father, are a great ruler. But the youngest son, who seems impertinent, isn't willing to just tell his father what he wants to hear. And he defiantly, by breaking them on his knee, breaks the three arrows. <laughs> and 
again, as Lear unfolds, he embraces his two older sons and banishes his younger son. They also bring over the character of Lear's fool, who in this movie is played by a Japanese drag queen with the stage name of Peter. So he brings this kind of cross-dressing energy to the fool role. The way the fools work in Shakespeare, our fools are the wisest people in the play. So he is the first one to realize that by ceding his power to the sons he should not be trusting, he has made an awful mistake. Hmm. Okay, Brad. Well, here is a point where we might slightly differ on our appreciation of the film. Obviously, from what I said earlier, and especially in context of uh, Kurosawa's life and career, it's a magnificent achievement. But in terms of the story part that you just described, I find myself at odds with it. And why is that? It's because you say that he made a mistake in picking those sons and casting out his younger son. But... My feeling on the movie is that he made the same mistake that you, I, and unfortunately everybody else makes, which is that he grew old. <laughs> because the younger son, while definitely is more accurate in terms of what's going on, what does he say in terms of to his dad about what's going on? Well, father, you can't have a retirement of leisure and peace with these guys because it won't work out. Mm -hmm. But what he doesn't offer is an alternative. And I don't think the movie offers an alternative for the warlord either. I think the part of the movie's point is, is that things are not going to go well for him regardless, which is not exactly in the sense that he is making a mistake. I want to just say that just from my perspective, I have not read King Lear. Everything I know about King Lear comes from the fact that Ron is based on King Lear. But you, as a much more knowledgeable on Shakespeare, you have had a chance to read and see the play. And so well, the, the, the movie, I could not. The movie narrative is close enough to Lear that I think anyone who watches Ron, while not getting all the details in Lear gets the point because it does for King Lear what Throne of Blood does for Macbeth. It takes Shakespeare's language and makes it visual. Now, the difference with Lear is you're dealing with a story that is far more fatalistic. So you're wondering why, what it means for him to make the right decision versus the wrong decision. But what the movie in particularly is interested in is, does he in fact deserve what he gets? Because even though he is our main point of reference, he is not a hero. He is not somebody we root for or possibly even like right as the right. film goes on it goes into detail on things that king lear the play only hints at oh. because in the play he is loved 
by the good characters, hated by the bad characters, but you're still left to ask, what kind of king was this guy in his prime? And Shakespeare lets you fill in those blanks. Kurosawa fills in those blanks for you, and the answer is not pretty, because mm -hmm. this movie is strewn with victims of Herdetera, victims that will come back to haunt him. One thing that might be alienating, and I understand why it would be alienating, is there's no one really to root for in the traditional hero sense. But I don't think it makes it any less compelling because you mentioned the idea of getting old, which is a theme of Lear, of Ron, okay. and of Kurosawa's thoughts at this point. He's dealing exclusively with old age at this point in his career. There's a, a line the fool says in the play that uh, says something effective. It was unfortunate that you grew old before you grew wise. <laughs> the correct answer for a ruler is to rule. Hedetera may have been a savage but effective ruler in the past, but now his age has caught up with him and made him foolish. And we're going to see the results of not only the foolishness of how he chooses to hand over his kingdom, but also the results of the wicked ways in which he ran his kingdom in this prime. Hmm. Maybe his tragic D is not acknowledging that he needs to continue being a bastard until he just drops. It's his personal tragedy. We are sometimes trained to hope for the best for our film uh, protagonists, protagonists mm -hmm. but maybe that's not the formula of this film. It's a larger scale, so we might be asking what's best for the kingdom, what's best for the people, what's best for his victims, instead of just what's best for him. Hmm. That, and that ties into something else that I find a little less responsive to in Run, in that the people are almost all but missing, with one exception, and even then I think it's uh, abstracted to an interesting level, because whereas in Kagamusha there is several scenes which show the desolation of war and you see the suffering that people cause from it from here, the chaos is just shown at such a remove, and even the battles themselves are kept, it seems to me they're kept at like arm's distance. And nowhere in the movie is there a real depiction of subjects getting oppressed, civilians getting slaughtered, or even really political gamesmanship in a way that Kagamusha was doing. It just seems that there are this family, Mm -hmm. and rivals for this family, and they fight their family squabbles. And I almost feel like 
if you have like a very unpleasant Thanksgiving dinner argument, but everyone has a 10,000 foot soldiers and some cavalry at their disposal. That's kind of how I respond to the armies in Ron. Well, they're, they're, they're like a more onrushing wave, which is the conflicts between the brothers more than anything else. Well, it's, it's kind of like watching CNN. They don't focus on the regular people. They focus on the leadership yeah. and and their personal dramas. And an this is uh, this yeah. is a, this is not a story about peasants or regular people in this society. This is a story about royalty, military conflicts, and what occurs on that level of kingship. Now we do get characters who are their underlings who might stand in for others who have certainly been hurt and slaughtered throughout this rule. We see characters who have married into this family, like Lady Kaede, whose family was slaughtered by Hedetera, or another son's wife, who is practically in exile because she won't be party to any of the evil that's around her and her own brother who had his eyes taken out in the same way that Gloucester, a character in the play who doesn't exist in this movie, had. So we see the results of his handiwork, and as the tables are turned... It's very interesting to see how these characters react to his downfall. Maybe in a way that evokes, like, say, the um, rich people and the servants in the exterminating angel and kind of the metaphoric things that that means. I think I see what you're saying about how the, the secondary characters in many ways are explicit commentary, especially on the destructive nature of what the main characters are doing. Mm-hmm. The Fool is a great example of just the countervailing conscience to what extent that Hedera has a conscience. The Fool is a great commentary, as is his sense of companionship. He is one, the few people who stand by his side after what the events happen in the movie. And can tell him the truth. Exactly. And this movie uses those to comment on what happens when people completely lose their agency or how they react to their the loss of ability to control their situation. Hedetera, when he gives up power, he had this sort of expectation that he would get a measure of respect and deference, and it's kind of shocking in such an epic movie how quickly that is all <laughs> delivered to shit right down to the point that like in a move that is so darkly bitter that it almost becomes humorous he's held in a state of siege of a building that is then set on fire causing him to emerge with a shocked ashen look on his face as he slowly emerges from a tower of smoke that's coming out of this building we we need to talk about that scene in, in some detail because okay. it is one of the stunners of this film at this point he's realized that he has been betrayed by the two older sons he's trusted and the two sons in turn 
are betraying each other and are going to war to mm-hmm. get single control of the kingdom and this palace, which is actually a set mm-hmm. that was built for an ungodly amount of money only to be burned down is one of the great set pieces yeah. in film. And it's the mill level huge. Yes, it's ridiculous. And then the battle scene takes place under this amazing score of music that dominates the scene. You see cannons and guns being fired. You see armies clashing, but you don't hear it. And this score builds and builds and builds until it goes silent. Mm -hmm. And then at the moment it goes silent, you hear the gunshot that kills the older brother. Right. And then you hear all the gunshots that happen and the fire that happens all around. And we as an audience are immersed now in this gigantic battle. And then Hidetora played in another magnificent performance by Tetsuya Nakadai. It's the beginning of his insanity. Because he he thinks he's going to die in that castle. The whole purpose was to get him to that castle as a trap. But he walks out of it. He's shocked to be alive. Everyone else is shocked to see him alive. That he's able to just walk out of the battle, leaving everyone stunned. Yes, that's (laughs) a really interesting point. It is so defies reality that it becomes sort of like a spiritual statement at this point because even that he does leave he is a a shell or a shadow maybe Ah. of his former (laughs) of his former self everything that he thought he could believe about what life had to offer from him just got burned up and is left to ash (laughs) in the castle from which he exited it's one of many scenes in the film that just grab you. The first one for me that made me realize I was watching something special is a scene earlier on when the fool is attacked by one of his son's bodyguards after making fun of him just a little a little too far. Right. And he's just like, okay, enough with this guy. He's about to kill him. And then you see an arrow pierce through him and the shot cuts to Hidetora in a window with a determined look And it gives a glimpse of the warrior he may have been earlier. Right. And it also evokes his very first image as he's, they're on a hunt for boar. Yes. And in a great series of close-ups, you cut, 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 cut to that look of pure dedication to slaughter that is on this guy's face. It's both compelling and gets us to immediately understand it's not a nice guy. You're not supposed to really want things to go end well for him. And they don't. But how it doesn't, after he leaves that castle, is depicted so brilliantly in a landscape as if, like, the stories in um, Redbeard are so disparate. Here, it's like the story is being yanked to two separate things at the seams. And it's important about that separation. When the brothers are squabbling when they're talking with allies and enemies all that is depicted in these big palaces 
and with gigantic armies where you see clearly all the formations and the strategies at play. These people are active, involved in this world. When Hidetera leaves, he's defined by the land that he's conquered and has lost. It was really interesting to me when I first saw the movie years and years ago upon why did they decide to set it in this field with these fabric curtains to have their big grand meeting about passing the torch to the sons. I, I was wondering, it's like, what, don't you guys have homes? <laughs> to quote Ted Knight's Caddyshack character. Isn't there like a castle where you can settle this stuff? But now, watching it now, and especially in context with not just um, Kurosawa, but John Ford's, of which Kurosawa was a fan of. Very much so, yes. Yeah. In terms of seeing all these Kurosawa and Ford films, in terms of how people can define their character and their feelings through the landscape, it makes perfect sense. He has a connection to the land. And I think, in fact, I think he even said when a king would die, they say the land starts to know you can't grow things because the king is the land. Mm -hmm. The king is the place. That's why when he's giving this land to his sons, it's outside. It's a beautiful hill. And that's why we don't see the world outside of this point of view. Because when these characters fall, it's apocalyptic. Yes. Because it's not just them falling personally. It's the fall of a way of life. Right. As we said, like how his dreams and thoughts of how life would be would turn to ash in the castle. Hedera then travels through a vast wasteland of actual volcanic ash. Mm -hmm. In a way that like how Monument Valley kind of works because it's such a desolate area. He's not going anywhere. He's not getting to any destination except the ruins of another castle. But in a personal metaphoric level for him, it makes perfect sense because he is cast out into a wilderness where nothing grows and nothing ever will. So the film does such a really interesting job of alternating between so much of the action between the other characters and just the lack of possible action for Hedera. And while he is lost and can't do anything about his situation, my favorite character in Ron, and one of my favorite characters in all of Kurosawa, is a person who very much rails against her inability, her limitations in what she can do. And that's Mieko Harada's performance as Lady Kaede, the wife of the oldest brother, whose entire family was killed by Hedera before the events of the movie. And in fact, they actually reside in her family's castle that has been conquered mm -hmm. and taken over. She is phenomenal. A person who has to take and presents the fury of Toshiro Mifuni at his most expressive, but has to keep this in check. The pure anger that roils within her frame is magnified so well by her frustration at how she can't change her situation that she comes off to having a white hot fury that just burns the screen every time I see her. There is a scene that perfectly 
encapsulates that fury. Lady Kade's husband has been killed in the earlier battle scene, so now she confronts the middle brother, who's now basically ruling the kingdom. And the way she handles her face-to-face meeting with the new ruler is so interesting that it led to one of the greatest audience ad-libs I've ever been witness to in a movie theater. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) Yes, this happened at Chicago's own Music Box. As the scene unfolds, she starts quietly making her case, but very soon lunges at him and grabs his, his knife and starts lightly cutting his throat just enough to draw a little blood. This scene of violence quickly turns into a scene of passion as she starts licking the blood off and Mm -hmm. seducing him. And during the course of this, after this outburst of intense violence and intense passion, she begins to weep. We already can tell this is very much not in her character to weep. But as she is weeping, we see her notice a bug crawling on the ground. And she methodically crushes the bug Mm -hmm. in her hand. Now, most audiences are meant to be quiet during movies. But you could hear a pin drop during this scene because nobody knows what she's going to do next. Mm -hmm. She has just run through every single emotion uh, and action possible in the situation. And then when she stops and crushes the bug, somebody in the back of the theater just kind of in awe goes, she rocks. (laughs) That was, I can tell you, that was not me, but I agree with that guy wholeheartedly. She's nine kinds of a kind of awesome that crosses the line between holy shit and back again <laughs> because she takes such a measure of pure domination on this brother who thinks he's really crafty and realizes he's over his head way too late. <laughs> and the way she just possesses every part of this guy And it's just an expression of all of her emotions and frustrations and ambitions. She, I think, one-ups or two-ups even some portrayals of Lady Macbeth on that score. And her creation is kind of an amalgamation of various Shakespeare characters, including Lady Macbeth, who has some similar scenes in Throne of Blood, but nowhere near as intense as as Lady Caeda. But she also has elements of Edmund, who is the villain in the King Lear play, and even of Iago from Othello, who is a master at the long-term manipulation of the powerful. Mm -hmm. So we very slowly begin to see that in a Shakespearean way, this non-royal woman who 
is basically been captured into this family gains enough agency to bring armies down. Right. And you feel that she could do this all by herself when you see her take that knife and saying, this is what I'll do to your kingdom and starts (laughs) rending her own garment. She both is such a perfect agent of Ron of chaos, an instrument of destruction while being so honest to the emotions that she has underneath. And such a great contrast between a person who has completely deserved contempt for others in this um, environment, both because of the horrible things they've done to her and her family, but also because she's so clearly superior to all of them. She's a wholly revenge-oriented character. It's not greed. She says she wants to be queen, but she doesn't really know. All she wants is revenge. And such a, such a gigantic character, such a gigantic depiction gets a gigantic death scene. That's true. That's so, so true. Never has a geyser of blood been so apt (laughs) for so many different reasons. Because she, for one thing, is so much full of emotion and fury that, yep, her blood pressure is that high. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the blood spray puts up such a perfectly great diagonal image on the wall behind her because to me it looks like a map of the territory Hmm. and also implies all the blood that has been spilled to get that territory and to you saying revenge it's i completely agree but i think it transcends revenge which is about a person or a group she wants to take a revenge on everything in the world and it's weirdly cool that she kind of succeeds oh she completely succeeds yeah even her own death is probably inherent in her plan Mm. (laughs) notably when the guy who cuts her and on her head after he does it he says well we're done for Let's go. Let's go leave and yes, be our doom. Because this actually follows the climactic battle in which uh, Lear's youngest son returns. They have their reunion, and it looks like there might be some respite. There might be some hope left. And, and, and as they ride away in the, in the wake of this battle, of course, a gunshot rings out, and the son is killed. And Hedera who has been, let's say, stressed already, Mm. finally reaches his breaking point and dies himself. So just like in Kagamusha, the destruction of these armies, the destruction of Hedera, the destruction of his sons, of their dynasty, in Kurosawa's hands represents something so much more. What is often on his mind in his old age is the specter of nuclear war. In a period piece, that would not be depicted directly, but 
by depicting the end of everything, he gives us a taste of kind of Armageddon and what it looks like when there's nothing left. It reaches in a place that film can rarely reach to. Mm. And, and it does it. And, and it's an amazing feat. And even though Ron might seem like a last film, Kurosawa, at the age of 80, actually gave us three more films, Dreams, Rhapsody in August, and Matadeo. I want to point out how his attitude was really great, seeing as how Matadeo's is Japanese for not yet. <laughs> Exactly. We're going to focus, though, on the very next film he did in 1990, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, which contains a series of vignettes which all in some way involve spirits or ghosts. While the dreamlike tales cover many different periods and settings, they often feature an observer standing in for the director himself. When you look at other movies... About dreams, I, I think of Waking Life, I think of Inception. I think both of those movies are probably better than Akira Kurosawa's dreams, but none of them are more like dreams. For better or for worse, I think that's his accomplishment here. These vignettes go in and out in the same way our real dreams do. They're often unresolved. They might have a buildup. They might not. They each contain these moments of transcendence, but they don't necessarily follow them to any logical conclusion. So what we end up with is a very unique film. He's not working at the level he was in Ron and in Kagamusha, but as an 80-year-old, now looking back at what I believe he has said were actual dreams he's had throughout his life, it's a unique achievement in and of itself. It's interesting to look at the different stories in dreams and see if they do have some connections. I think you're onto something with pointing out how they are about a person who is observing something, often a ritual. And it's also, it seems that most of these sections deal with the main character ending up alone. Even in the first section, which finds a six-year-old kid locked out of his own house and told he won't be able to ever get return unless he does right by the demons or spirits he's inadvertently witnessed which may involve killing himself. <laughs> That's a pretty heady stuff for a kid's, uh, for a dream involving a kid. Yeah, this first vignette really packs a punch and fits in with the style 
that will continue because when he seeks out this uh, spirit world that he saw accidentally, we get this incredible fantasy landscape. It's actually the poster of the movie mm-hmm. features this landscape, but it, it, it's one of those things where you gasp and then you wonder, well, what is this? What is this all about? Except then it ends. And then begins with another vignette as the same kid, or is he, is then tempted to explore outside by a very colorful lady, and he goes to what appears to like just be this big green wall where he's regaled by a number of people who say that the spirits of the cherry blossoms and will proceed to go in this very stylized dance and musical piece while kid watches. Well, when the blossom people come to life and, and do their colorful dance, they also point out that they've been chopped down by his family and the reason they're willing to show themselves to him is because he cried and objected and hate and didn't want them to be chopped down. So mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, the child's introduction to loss, which is a theme that runs through a few of these, as we see in a later vignette, a now adult protagonist is a soldier who walks through a tunnel, but then when he turns around, he sees the ghostly visions of his troops who have apparently all been killed, yet he survived. And yet the ghosts approach him as if he's still their captain and to follow him. And he has to really make the case that he is living and they are dead. They need to go their way and he needs to go his which I believe he resolves by giving them a military order to, yes. <laughs> to go back. This movie has access to some amazing visuals, both just in the form of Kurosawa's own use of color, but also an unprecedented level of special effects. And that is because the special effects are from Lucasfilm. Mm. Part of the funding from the film came from Steven Spielberg. And starring in one of the vignettes is Martin Scorsese (laughs) as Vincent Van Gogh. I wonder who would be the more intense person, (laughs) the actor in the scene or the character he portrays. (laughs) It's a very, very cool match. I didn't buy him as Vincent van Gogh, Mm. but that is more than made up by the visual splendor of this young man walking through a living painting of van Gogh's greatest hits. I mean, if you know his paintings, just imagine those coming to life. Mm -hmm. Plus talk about the ultimate example of a person trying to find himself I'm on a landscape of art, (laughs) as in this sequence. I kind of think this is the key sequence in Dreams. It so informs what Kurosawa is doing through the other sections of the film and is one of the spotlights that he wants to give on what inspired his career in directing and painting or art 
in general, I feel. For sure, for sure. And some of the dreams turn out to be nightmares. Yes. Like one in which, uh, called Mount Fuji in red, in which the, the volcano appears to be exploding, but what is actually happening is nuclear reactors behind the volcano, which is rendered in a very surrealistic fashion, like a matte painting. And knowing that Kurosawa really was obsessed with nuclear destruction gives us a certain resonance. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about all these dreams is how willing Kurosawa is to only allow us glimpses. And I would kind of say the same thing about the film as I would about a lot of dreams, which is, well, yes, that was something, but I don't really remember it fully. I don't really recall the meaning that it might have had while I was asleep. It's both satisfying and not at the same time. Okay. I find that once I get past the idea that it's telling a completely coherent narrative story, I appreciate the visual inspirations on display. I think the Van Gogh section makes that explicit. Right. That that's what mm -hmm. Kurosawa was aiming for with making dreams. And every so often during the film, all the cinematic stars align to produce some really unforgettable imagery. So I really like that part. Well, one thing is for certain, it's impressive that an 80-year-old filmmaker who has been making films since the early 40s would end his career not only with such personal works, but also with the kind of films he's never made before. If Very you true. watch Dreams, you're not going to be reminded of a single other Kurosawa film that we've discussed, either in part one or part two. So true, It is yes. its own thing that Kurosawa shifted to at the age of 80. Mm-hmm. And while he made subsequent films, including Not Yet, which, again, I love as, as a spirit, mm -hmm. it's a really potent image at the end of Dreams for a guy contemplating his long career as he slowly walks off on the watermill path. And all this nature and color is all there and present and in motion to give a really great, tranquil send-off for the character leaving his dream journey. And now we will have to send off our look at one of the greatest of all filmmakers, Akira Kurosawa. Yes, thanks you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our exploration of Akira Kurosawa and his work. If you have comments about your favorite moments from his films, criticisms of his work, or comments on the films that we were very unfortunate to not get to, you can let us know by giving an email our way at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Directors Club can be found on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. We're now on Spotify under Directors Club Podcast. And that's how you can get to us through our Facebook page. And we are also available on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com, which allows you to access our earlier episodes as well. 
And we are on Twitter under the name DC Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and hope to catch you next time on another episode of the Director's Club.